0: The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, and then verses 5 to 6, and then Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. I'm going to read the rest of verse 6, because that's kind of the point of the whole sermon here. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Then Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence to take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're, we're in this series talking about the mothers of Jesus, but before I do that, I just want to kind of point something out. So Crystal is going to Bosnia and something that's, um, anytime you go to a different place like that to do mission work, which is significant. You know, every Christian's a missionary. Every single one of us is called to image who Jesus is and what he's done in our context, in our place. But some of us are called in a special way to go to a different place to do that. And inevitably, Crystal will experience something uh, that all missionaries in different places experience, and that is this experience of being on the outside, sort of, um, because she's not from Bosnia. But the reality is, is that Jesus very much has a message for the people there, and he's going to use her to be part of that, which is why our church is supporting her, is why we're encouraging you to pray and be part of her work. But. When Crystal's over there um, and we're praying for her and thinking about her, one of the things that we can be praying is that she remembers, in, the, in spite of everything that's going on around you, uh, being in a different place, that your people love you and that your God loves you, that you're not alone, um, you're, you're not on the outside. Yeah, this Mothers of Jesus series that we're looking at together is about women who have experienced what it's like to be on the outside. Uh, to be even outcast in some ways, they are those that are they're included in the lineage of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter one. There's forty some odd people mentioned. There's five women who are mentioned, and this morning we come to the story of one that is called, uh, you know, Uriah's wife, as we read in Matthew chapter one. There, um, Uriah's wife is of course Bathsheba, and Bathsheba's story is tragic, and, and we'll talk. We'll get more in depth about that, but. What we read here is that Bathsheba is uh, taken advantage of by somebody who she should have been able to trust, her king. And essentially this king sets up a situation to where her husband is murdered and then he tries to cover it up and he almost gets away with it. But then God enters in and does something to change and transform. Even that situation uh, that, that is tragic and difficult and horrible and turns it into being part Of the story that is Advent and Christmas you know you you read there Solomon's mother right the wife of Uriah uh, that's Bathsheba and there it's an incredible story of God taking something that perhaps might have ended horribly and done all this damage and there was a lot of damage and tragedy from it and takes it and redeems it that's who Jesus is if you want to take one thing away from the story this morning that would be something to take away is that there's no person that God's not interested in. There's no situation God doesn't want to enter into. That there's, there's nothing that's gone on in all the world and all of time that God isn't willing to enter into and bring the message of grace. You know, the people in this story, the women, uh, the five women in the lineage, they have some similarities to Jesus. One is, of course, um, they all have tragic stories of being people who were in very difficult situations and difficult circumstances, and yet being deeply cared for by their father. They were abandoned. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like like to be cast aside. Something else that's in common with these mothers of Jesus that we're talking about in this series is that they were all underestimated and overlooked. And Jesus is certainly underestimated and overlooked by many in the moment of those who see him, as well as us today. You know, as someone who's been following Jesus for a long time, I constantly find myself underestimating just how powerful he is, how good he is, how interested he is. And then lastly, although although all of the women in the genealogies of Jesus are beloved of God, of course, um, and they're in difficult situations, yes, God is going to use their lives to be part of the ultimate story of redemption. People who were outcasts, perhaps, become people who are at the center of the most beautiful and powerful story ever you know it's, it's it's there's really no question women are the most oppressed people group in the history of humanity and they're included in this as really heroines because god's going to use them to bring us this message that we're even thinking about and talking about this morning this morning it is precisely in an environment that feels hopeless that god raises up the cross and raises up his grace and brings transformation and that is good news especially as we head out of 2020 and by god's grace 2021 will be different we worship a god who enters into our experience and says i have more there's something next no matter what you're seeing around you no matter how bad the situation is my grace is sufficient for you and i'm inviting you into this now we haven't gotten to mark chapter six yet in our mark series we will in january january when we return to it but but think about some of these things Jesus, this is in Mark chapter 6, we read this. Jesus left there and went to the hometown, his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's the wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That's people's response to Jesus when they can see him face to face. They took offense at him. Jesus was, of course, born to a very average family, uh, just, you know, Mary and Joseph. Uh, he, uh, his profession was quite earthy. He was a carpenter until he entered into this moment of ministry. Um, but he was pretty normal, and pretty average. And yet what we read in Isaiah the prophet in chapter 9 are these words about this Jesus who was born to Mary underestimated, overlooked. These are the words we read prophesying about what He will ultimately do. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on His shoulders, and He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's what Advent is about. Jesus has come. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He is the conqueror of all. He is the one who's able to actually handle what our hearts so long for, which is a God that is enough. One who offers to us grace so as you read there in isaiah as we've been talking about we're going to look at david just for a couple moments to set the context to then talk a- about uriah's wife bathsheba so i can't cover everything about david you need to read the scriptures if you don't know all the stories about him but let me just give you some things david was a mighty warrior and he was incredibly powerful and he had gone out to battle you know it was said of his father he had killed you know, hundreds and even thousands and David had killed, I mean, and then David had killed thousands and even tens of thousands. Like he was like uber warrior. He was like the picture of what it means to be a powerful warrior. Eventually David is uh, installed as king and he's in his fortress and there are still battles waging and he would send his men out to fight these battles. And when his men are out fighting at one point, David is walking around in his kingdom and he sees this woman bathing Bathsheba and he takes a lot of interest in her a lot of interest in her. She gets pregnant. And so David says, okay, I've got to figure out what to do about this because this is incredibly dishonorable what I've done. For one of my men to be out fighting and for me to take advantage of this situation in my place of power and my authority, like, what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. What I'll do is when I'll make sure that Uriah comes home or, you know, in his tent, and I'll make sure Bathsheba goes and spends the night with him and tell him to drink and eat and be merry, to enjoy his wife, and, um, and then, you know, Calendar stuff, this will all look fine. Well, Bathsheba goes and spends time with him, and Uriah says this, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink? We're in battle. I can't do that. And so then David hears about this, and he's like, okay, what else can I do? Because that plan did not work. I know. I will send... Um, Uriah to fight on the front lines in the most dangerous battle and he'll get killed and then I'll marry Bathsheba and it'll still all work out. And so Joab, Uriah's commander, hears this, realizes this is uh, very out of character and not normal and not good. And he says, okay, I'm going to do some of this. I'm going to go ahead and send Uriah to battle. I'm going to send them with his protected men and it'll be in a dangerous area and he'll probably survive because these guys are awesome. Uriah does not survive. Uriah dies. Essentially, uh, David murdered him is what happened. Okay. So then that all happens. And then uh, David's friend, Nathan comes up to him. And this is in Second Samuel chapter 12. And let me kind of read this to you. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men. He's telling the story. There were two men in a certain town and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. This is like a beloved pet, right? It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was even like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Well, Nathan's telling David this story, and David gets fired up. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for this lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan looks at him and says, You are the man. This story is about you. This is what you have done. So in that moment, David realizes he has a choice to either continue to cover it up or to face it. And that's why we read Psalm 51, where David eventually will pray, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Something changes in him to where he realizes, I can't keep the lies going. I can't keep the facade going. I can't keep trying to cover this up. It's getting worse and worse and worse, which is why God calls us to follow him. It's why, you know, this thing called sin, it's any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God, the confession tells us, What that means is is that God's ways lead to life, and other ways lead to death. God doesn't give us commands and direction because he just wants to be a control freak. It's actually him saying, look, I love you so much, I want to give you a path that leads to life. David chose a different path. So what we're going to do this morning, it's really just kind of two points, but we're going to talk about what does it mean to be really allured to something? What was it that David was allured to? What are our hearts often allured to and why? Especially when those things are going to destroy us as God the Father has told us they will do. If we are allured to things that God has said, these are not good for you. Like a parent who tells their child, don't drink the pine salt. I know it smells awesome. Do not drink the pine salt. It is not going to work out for you. That's not being a control freak. That's not wanting to have to call poison control, Right? what are we allured to and why are we allured to it now when i think of being allured to things one of the things that comes to my mind is dessert right and you've been at dinner and you've had this incredible dinner and you're full and the waiter or the waitress comes up and they say those words and you know they're coming would you like to have some dessert and i I kind of like okay do i want to do this do i want to do this do i want to do this you know you kind of battle And, and getting dessert's not bad dessert's awesome in fact we had a staff lunch this week kind of a christmas lunch for our staff because I treasure them so much and they are incredible the work they do in our church and it happened as I was picking up their food what did the woman ask me but would you like some dessert and I said yes we're gonna have some dessert and we had some lovely dessert you know foods good Gluttony's not right storytelling is good don't you love good stories lying is not feeling loved is good feeling appreciated is good feeling valued is good looking to other people by what they say and what they do and how they treat you to define for yourself who you are and how much you matter that is not good the only one who can handle that is god himself which is what the story is about david being allured not to the honor of men not to protecting his reputation not to protecting his kingdom but being allured first to the life giver what are we allured to and why for something to be alluring means it has this sort of powerful Mysterious attraction to, you know, it's drawing our hearts out. And that can be different for different people. You know, there was a time where the biggest thing I was allured to was the largest Lego set you could buy me. That's typically not what I'm allured to now. Like our hearts change. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful above all things. You know, but in the moment, things that we are allured to can feel so necessary and so important that we don't care about the consequences as long as we can have that thing, and that's exactly where David goes. Now, why did David do this? Was it because he needed a friend? No, it was not. David had tons of friends, plenty of of people to hang out with. Did David do this because he, he thought Bathsheba was beautiful? Yes, apparently she very much was, and there's nothing wrong with that to acknowledge that. Did David like Bathsheba because he wanted a wife? Again, no. David had several wives. He had many wives. And the Bible doesn't encourage polygamy. In fact, it's it's rigidly monogamous. But what you discover in the Scriptures is that any time God decides to use somebody, any time He wants to use them to do anything, and this includes us, there's another factor that has to always be present when God chooses to use us. Are you ready? You're going to need His grace. You're going to need Him to overlook your weaknesses. You're going to need Him to use you where you are for His purposes. Now, it's not a justification for polygamy in this moment. What it's saying is, is that Even though that was happening, God was gracious and wanted to use David and wanted to make him part of the grand story, which should be an encouragement to us that God doesn't set up for us a performance review of how we're doing before he wants to be interested in us. That's not how it works. Now, if your name's Angela and you're on The Office, you love performance reviews. There's 201 episodes in The Office. Angela is the token Christian, and it's probably the probably the least attractive expression of what it means to follow Jesus that I've ever seen in my life because she is so self-righteous and she never looks on the inside she rarely acknowledges her weaknesses but she's going to have a performance review and she says this she goes I actually look forward to performance reviews I really enjoy being judged I believe I hold up really well to severe scrutiny and she's just smiling and she's smug as the as they're interviewing her in the show And then michael says angela it's time for your performance review and she gets up and she's just marching right over there because she knows she's just going to kill it she's so proud of herself and just as she gets just as she gets near the door the secretary says hey michael someone's on the phone he goes angela you did amazing no need for performance review see you later and she's just destroyed and so sad because she was looking for this moment where she could remind everyone who's watching look how awesome and amazing i am you know, God does not run through a performance review with us and say, "Now look, I want to be gracious to you, I want to be kind to you, I want to be merciful to you, I want to include you, but I need to check off some boxes first before you can be a recipient of my grace." No, scriptures tell us that we are dead in our transgressions; that there's no one that's righteous, not even one. That any time we are the recipients of God's grace, it's because, it's because God has said this first: "I will be your God, and you will be my person." And it's going to cost me everything to pull this off. And you're worth it, and my kingdom's worth it, and that's who I am. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be gracious to you, regardless if you deserve it, and you don't deserve it. David was no exception to that. In your life, as you think about things you're allured to, what you're really drawn to, you know, answer that question, what do I what do I what must I have this week in order to be at peace? What must I have in order to be in a good mood when I walk in the door late at night? You know what must I have in order to feel fulfilled whatever it is not that those things wouldn't help because they probably would but the shininess wears off it's not that those things are probably bad things it's that the first thing that your heart most needs to be allured to to calibrate to to center on is this reality that God treasures you that Advent is about God going to whatever links necessary for you to be able to celebrate this season anticipating Christ coming to dwell among us because he knows you will not find satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment until you start with being allured first to his grace and his mercy. It's not a divine riddle. God's saying, I've made you for relationship with me, and you are going to clamor for stuff to satisfy you what only I can give you until you believe me that that is true. Look to me. I will approach you. I will be gracious to you. And that can be very, very difficult for us to do. You know, kids, why is it hard to do what our parents tell us to do? Because we don't always think that they're right. And, you know, we don't always trust that what they're saying is best. And you know what? Sometimes they're, you're right. But God calls us to trust our parents because they're our parents, right? That's the same thing with God. Sometimes we don't understand God's ways. The good news is God's never wrong. He's always gracious. His ways are higher than our ways. And he invites us to trust him even when it's difficult because that's actually what faith is. Faith isn't just trusting God whenever it's easy. That that is easy to do. Faith is saying this is really complicated. And God, if you don't show up and you're not gracious and you're not merciful and you're not as powerful as you say, I don't know what I'm going to do. And He's like, that's right. That's why you need me. That's why you need to be allured to who I am. I'm only 44 years old. Some of you have got a lot of years on me. Some of you have much fewer years on me. But this one truth is always real. God is and must always be our center as we think about everything else around us. You know, One of the things that happens if we try to make someone else be the center, if we decide our behavior and the way we're going to treat people is going to be based on how they treat us, what, it, what ultimately happens, especially if you love this person, is you absolutely crush them in the process because nobody can be God for you. If you haven't discovered this about me yet, I'm going to fail you. I'm not, hopefully not on purpose. I'm usually not that ornery. But people can't be God for you. God has to be God for you. And when we've experienced God's love and we work out how to love others like that, the result of that is, re- is resurrection, life, renewal, hope, graciousness, kindness, joy, contentment. When we turn it upside down and we say, okay, I'm going to be nice to you, uh, but once you're really nice or once you deserve it, Look, that, that's a way that always leads to death, as we even see in the scriptures. David is allured to this thing with Bathsheba because he's thinking, I must have this in order to be content. I must have this to be satisfied. I need this moment of pleasure, whatever it was. And what he discovered was, is that once he took a bite of that apple, it was rotten. It was a lie. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. Be allured to the life giver. When you feel yourself being allured to something else recognize that even the acknowledgement of that reality is the holy spirit saying pause just a minute what are you really being allured to and why why are you so angry about this or why are you so disappointed it's okay to be upset about this it's okay to be disappointed but are you first calibrating to the fact that i am going to be gracious to you are you allured to me and my message of mercy to you first or not what is god's response to people like david What is his response to us whenever we are allured to things that are not what he has for us that are best? Well, three things. Remember these three things. You ready? Grace, grace, and grace. That's God's response, even to people who are struggling to be allured to him first. Think about the different women in the lineage of Jesus again. Tamar. She's abandoned by her father. Then she uses entrapment. But nevertheless, God forgives her and restores her. Rahab makes her living as a prostitute, but God remembers her and protects her and makes her part of the grand narrative of the gospel. Ruth, who Kyle spoke about last week, is a woman who, according to all the things about her, really shouldn't have been part of the story at all. And yet she's very much a part of the story because God is gracious and he's inviting the world to be part of his message. Mary, the mother of Jesus, a a woman who's with a child but says she's a virgin. There's scandal all over the place. And yet God takes her and she, he honors her. And he says, look, I'm going to entrust you with something I've entrusted with no other human being in all of creation. I want you to nurse and care and tend to my son who's going to be born into the world. And as we read from Isaiah, he's is going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, the one who rules over all. I, w- I want you to trim his toenails and I want you to clean him and I want you to raise him and I want you to discipline him he transforms Mary in that moment. And then of course we come to Bathsheba. And she is a victim for sure, but she also participates in some ways. And what we discover is that God says, "You meant this for destruction. I'm going to I'm actually going to make this part of something that's going to be amazing to you because you're going to have a son named Solomon eventually, and he's going to eventually have sons who eventually have uh, bring Jesus into the lineage." 2nd Samuel chapter 7 says this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, that's talking both about Solomon, but it's also talking about the one who would eventually come, Jesus himself. So, how do these promises connect with Uriah's wife? God's revealing a few things here. One is that God's grace is for people like Uriah's wife, like Bathsheba, even like David, like Tamar, like Ruth, like Rahab, like Mary, like Bathsheba. God's grace is for them. And, you know, if you were writing the story of the Bible, you might not pick those same people to be the recipients of God's grace. And we are reminded in that moment that Here's God's good news for us. There's no such thing as an unimportant, irredeemable, insignificant human being that he's made. God is invested in bringing his message to all who want to know him, to everyone. God cares for Bathsheba. Whereas David had essentially abandoned her and put her in an impossible situation, God is gracious to her and sustains her. The Lord includes her in this so that she would know that. You know, for us during the season of Advent, it's good for us to remember as we're probably, we've already spent a lot of time together with the whole pandemic thing, but as we spend more time in places with family perhaps, to know that God intends for us to receive His grace and then to express it towards others. That is His paradigm for life for us as a church. Receive God's grace and hack into learning how to express it towards others because when we do, the result is life and goodness. Bitterness actually is what it is. It's called that for a reason. No matter how good it might feel or right it might feel, ultimately it destroys. Being ungracious, even though someone may deserve it. Aren't you so glad God doesn't approach you with that same paradigm? I'll be as gracious as you as you deserve it. There's no life in that. God calls us into realizing he has grace for people. Secondly, God's the hero in this story. God's the hero in this story. Despite David... Uh, just despite what happens with Bathsheba, despite all of the elements that are going on, David seeks to cover up his sin. And God says, no, there's no power in covering up your sin. There's going to be power in you understanding how wrong this is, how much death it's brought and that I have a better way, a way that leads to life. Be part of what I'm doing. David's life, you know, as cool as he was, and he had a lot of things going for him, really strong, mighty warrior, king of everything, you know, in that time in Israel, Um, If you were into social media in uh, 1200 B.C. or whatever, you would have loved to have had him as a follower and be his follower because he has some crazy stories, right? That's who David is. He is the most unimpressive character in this entire story. God takes what we think matters and turns it upside down. The king becomes the villain in this story. And And God invites him to put his trust in something greater. So... God's grace is for everyone. God is the hero in this story. And then lastly, we learn that there is no mistake in our lives that God is not able to bring grace and redemption to. I'm hoping that none of you measure up to David's sin in regards to actual activity. I hope you haven't murdered anyone. Like, I think that if you have, you know, please, let's talk about that. But most of us haven't even done these things, and yet what we see is God transforms David's heart so much he begins to write the Psalms. Create a, create in me a new spirit. Renew me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Build me up. Be gracious to me. Open my eyes to the truth of who you are. And that's really the invitation during Advent for us as well. To ask that God would help us to actually see Jesus for as mysterious and powerful and accessible he really is. So that we can be transformed. It's only in seeing who Jesus is and beginning to believe that he has enough grace for me that we actually begin to experience. Experience transformation, it doesn't go the other way. God invites us to experience his grace and to express it. Now, Christmas is like three weeks away, right? If you haven't done your Christmas shopping, there's still time on Amazon or whatever, you know, however you're doing it. But Christmas is three weeks away, and that's the winter solstice. December 25th is the winter solstice. Uh, Very, 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 very few historians believe that Jesus was actually born on Christmas morning, on December 25th, right? It's It's probably in April, more likely. But why is it the Christian tradition has wrapped itself around this church calendar aspect of having Thanksgiving and then you know Christ the King Sunday where we celebrate Jesus as the king and then we kind of start over in the life of Jesus and turn into Advent where we're entering into the Older Testament follower of God moment, leading up, anticipating, waiting for the king, and then Jesus himself coming on this Christmas morning as we head into his ministry and and um, and towards the resurrection. Why do Christians celebrate on December 25th Christmas? Why do we do that? The whole winter solstice thing. The sun is furthest from the earth on December 25th. It's the furthest distance. It's the coldest moment for us uh, compared to where we should be with the sun on the 25th. And that's the morning we celebrate that Christ, the risen King, the light of the world has come to dwell among us. You know everybody in this room are in different seasons if you are in a really dark season we all are to a certain extent because 2020 has been seriously rough remember this on christmas morning there's no place where god's light does not enter in you know, there's no distance you could possibly be from god where he doesn't bring the light and the message of his grace to you that, that's what we celebrate during the season the advent of god's grace the culmination of his promises in the birth of Jesus, even from these ancient texts, this longing for a king who could come and bring what's next in his great story of redemption for us, okay? Let me pray for us as we approach the table. Lord, we do celebrate your advent. We celebrate that you Include these different women in the genealogy of Jesus to remind us of the complexity of the story, but also of the power of your grace for all those in the story. And this morning, as we reflect on your promises, as we reflect on what we are really allured to, would you, by the power of your spirit, give us eyes to see Jesus for who he is, that we might be first allured to him, to be able to experience again the freshness of his grace even this morning Use these things for our sakes, for your kingdom and the work of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.